In the West Bank and Gaza, elections are not frequent occurrences. The last one was in 2006. Hamas, a terrorist organization, openly committed to Israel's extermination, and if you'll forgive me for stating the obvious, opposed to a two-state solution, won a parliamentary majority. The Palestinian civil war followed. A year later, Hamas ruled Gaza, while the Palestine Liberation Organization held power in the West Bank. Attempts over the years to reunite these two Palestinian factions have failed. New elections are scheduled, more or less. As we record this, we're hearing that Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas is seriously considering a postponement. For a month, a year, a decade or two? To explore such questions, the forces at play, and what it all means for Palestinians, Israelis, Americans, and other interested parties, we're joined by Jonathan Shanzer, FDD Senior Vice President for Research and a longtime observer of and commentator on Palestinian politics. Also on hand is Matthew Zweig, a senior fellow at FDD who worked on Palestinian assistance at the House Committee on Foreign Affairs for almost 18 years. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're with us too here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Okay, so by my count, Israelis have had four elections over the last two years. The Palestinians had elections in 2005 and 2006, but none since. So I guess one conclusion you could draw is that the Israelis just can't get it right, while the Palestinians did elections so well, they, they just haven't needed to repeat them. Is that, or is, am I being too generous, John? Well, you might be a little generous on both counts. I think they <laughs> have, have a bit of a, um, an overactive democracy uh, and, and that they're at, at really an impasse over the leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu. And I think uh, that may play itself out over the next couple of months as he goes through his legal issues and everything else. Uh, but certainly uh, being in politics in Israel is not for the faint of heart. Uh, it, being in politics in the Palestinian territories requires uh, bravery. It, re- it requires courage because right now there is really only one leader, and that is Mahmoud Abbas. He is now 16 years into a four-year term. He's not really allowed for any political participation uh, in the West Bank and the territory that he controls and he's certainly not interested in having Hamas take over the fiefdom that he has right now in the West Bank. So we've been in an impasse now for many years. It was interesting that he even agreed in the first place to hold these elections. Uh, but as you suggested, it doesn't look likely that uh, they're going to go through now. I think he's thought better of it. And that may be for the best. And, and, and just to be clear, he in, in the West, on the West Bank... He is president of the Palestinian Authority. He's chairman of Fatah and the Palestine Liberation Organization. He controls the judiciary. 
the executive and the security forces. All of that. So I mean, two questions, Rob. But on the but in Gaza, he can't even sit on the beach and get a tan, right? He cannot. Okay. And, and Matt, let me just bring you in here. Here's an example over all these years: the Palestine, the, the, the the PA, the Palestinian Authority, has been getting loads of aid. Didn't people in Congress say, you know what, this this should not be so dominated by one man? I mean, part of what we're trying to do is help them develop a system where there that that is more than one dictator ruling having been elected one time only over absolutely everything this is this is not successful from our point of view if it's an example of aid and democracy promotion and developing the palestinian authority into into something that we'd want to support in a two state solution or 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 some other configuration no Cliff, I would agree with that assessment. Um, you saw what you saw in Congress uh, between Congress and the administration or the executive branch over the last uh, few decades has been a considerable amount of push and pull precisely on that fact that has manifested itself in quite a bit of statutory conditionality in terms of assistance to the West Bank and Gaza. John, is there. What am I, am I being unfair in this sense? Hey, over all these years that he's that, that Mahmoud Abbas has been in power, following Yasser Arafat, who held full absolute power um, prior, has he achieved something that I that, that he should, for which he should get credit for the people at least of the West Bank, if not Gaza? Yeah, I, look, he actually does deserve some credit. Um, first, uh, he prevented Hamas from taking over in the West Bank. Uh, during the Civil War of 2007. Uh, he brought an end to the uh, Second Intifada uh, across the Palestinian territories. This, of course, was a war uh, that was launched by Arafat between the years of 2000 and 2005. He has been nonviolent. Um, he has been committed to a, a sort of a bureaucratic rule. I think where he deserves the criticism, and, and I don't think he's actually received enough of it, is that he has um, he has basically created a system of uh, full-on authoritarianism. He has been uh, spying on his own people. In fact, that there was a, uh, a report recently suggesting that he had a hacking scheme that Facebook just had to disrupt so that he wasn't able to continue to spy on his own people. He has pilfered uh, American assistance and European assistance to benefit his own uh, family and his cronies. So he is, he's become an Arab strongman but in the process, he has helped provide at least some stability by marginalizing Hamas and bringing an end to the violence. You know, one, one thing historically, you mentioned the, the Palestinian civil war. You've written about it. The mainstream or the media, what we call the mainstream media, really didn't. This was back. This was back. This was after the elections. You had elections, in, as we say, in 2005, 2006. That's when Mahmoud Abbas won the Hamas won the parliamentary elections. The elections, this was not supposed to happen, led to a civil war. And we're not talking about a metaphorical political battle here. I want to make this clear because I don't think people remember, and partly because I don't think it was covered very well. Um, this was a real civil war. I mean, this was a shooting, fighting, killing civil war, was it not? It was. You had Palestinians uh, pushed off of tall buildings to their death. 
You had people being shot in the legs and arms to ensure permanent disabilities. You have a situation now where you've got two separate territories under two separate governments. Um, and there is a bitterness that lingers among Palestinians. It, of course, raises questions about Palestinian nationalism and whether there is one cohesive ideology that encompasses the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. It's a black eye for Palestinian nationalism, to put it mildly. Uh, but this animosity continues to this day. It was interesting because it looked as if we might have been able to put all of this in the rear view with elections that both sides agreed upon. Uh, but, you know, I always remain skeptical and I also remain skeptical of whether, not only whether the two sides would be able to uh, kind of bury the hatchet for new elections, but really whether they had forgotten all of the pain and suffering that the two sides had imposed upon one another. I think that anger and animosity lingers today. Three elections are now are now scheduled, parliamentary and presidential. One, John, why is Mahmoud Abbas thinking of postponing them? What's the real reason? And then what's the reason he's likely to give for postponing them, assuming that they're not the same? Sure. And, and you know, I, I, I would defer to, to Matt Zweig on this. Um, but, you know, there are real problems that are going to occur uh, if Hamas wins even um, a minority position in the, in the coming government. And there's a high likelihood of Hamas winning at least a few seats uh, under the, the new system, uh, which will um, basically their national elections, they, the, the, the voting districts are no longer segmented. You get a proportional representation based on the total number of votes and Hamas is sure to win some of those therefore taking part in a future government. And so the Israelis um, are, have expressed, expressed their concern and displeasure. The United States has been a little bit weird in that it has not uh, directly warned the PA about this, but they have uh, apparently said that there could be ramifications if Hamas takes part. Those ramifications would likely mean a cut in funding from the United States. But those are, are, are not really the reasons why Abbas will ultimately say that he's going to cancel these, if in fact he does. What he will say is that he wants all Palestinians to take part in these elections and that the Israelis are dragging their feet on allowing uh, Palestinians based in East Jerusalem in particular, uh, that, that the Israelis will be preventing this. It's not true. The Israelis have in the past allowed for this. They will, I would say, undoubtedly allow for it in the, in the future. Um, there are mechanisms that allow for this, but I think Abbas needs a scapegoat. He needs to be able to say that it was the Israelis' fault that he scuttled these elections, as opposed to the inclusion of Hamas or his own discomfort about potentially losing power. We probably should just get it in here real quickly. Um, Jordan, they have a dog in this fight in the sense that Jordan is, is Israel's ally. It's at peace with Israel. Um, the Israelis want the, the royal family to continue to maintain stability there. But most of the people of Jordan, most Jordanians are Palestinians. Jordan is historically about 75% of the, of the area was called Palestine. Um, the king has to worry about what happens on, on, the, on the West Bank. Um, what does Jordan want to see these elections? Hope they'll be, uh, when I say Jordan, I mean the, 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 I mean the king. Does he hope that they'll be postponed or, or, or canceled or are we not? Sh and, and it's at a time of some instability in Jordan as well, we should point out. 
Yeah, it, look, it, it, there, we have this very strange episode that happened a few weeks ago between the former crown prince and the king of Jordan, where they are having a very public spat uh, in ways that I don't think really uh, conveys uh, confidence and the stability uh, of the Hashemite kingdom. Uh, I think it's in the rear view, at least for now. Uh, but I think w- when you look at Jordan's interest, I mean, they've, um, they don't like Hamas. They don't like the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, they're concerned about Islamism writ large. They also would like to uh, see some stability in the Palestinian Authority because roughly 80 or 85 percent of Jordan are Palestinian citizens. They won't say that, but that is the reality. So what they'd like to see is for there to be an election, for things to finally settle down and for there to be one day a Palestinian state where some of their uh, population could potentially uh, move. I think that that's probably a lot of what they're thinking about. But then there's the other side of this, which is if there is a successful election and that you begin to see the building of a democracy in the West Bank, you've got to wonder, you know, the Palestinians living in Jordan are going to wonder why they don't have a similar system. And so I've got to imagine that the Jordanians are a bit torn about all of this and may not have a clear perspective just yet. But as I think we've noted, with the elections likely to be postponed, I think it'll be, you know, sort of an academic thing to ponder for at least another few months. You know, uh, Nathan Brown, somebody we all know, he's a George Washington University political science professor. He said, uh, predicted the elections will not be clean. They will not be fair. He added one of the biggest crises for the Palestinian national movement is essentially an institutional one. There are no credible institutions to essentially manage their affairs. Um, Matt, you have a sense in the administration, in Congress, is there concern at this point about any elections going forward not being free and fair, as Nathan Brown suggests? Well, Cliff, I think there's almost a, at least in in Congress, um, or in some quarters of Congress, there's almost an assumption that um, there will be problems with the next next set of elections. Um, And to John's point, right, whether or not they are postponed or whether they go forward in May or they're partially, or or you're looking at a situation where you have partial elections, um, one set of elections are are held, another set aren't, uh, you really are looking at the the elections will be an inflection point for the administration and for Congress when it comes to how they view Palestinian aid. You know, I I don't really trust polls taken in places like Gaza and the West Bank, but you can't entirely ignore them. And I saw in September uh, 2020, an opinion poll indicated that Hamas leader Ismail Haniyeh would beat Mahmoud Abbas 52% to 39% in a head-to-head contest. And uh, Mar- Marwan Bar- Barghouti, if he ran, he's a convicted terrorist, he was slated to win 55% of the votes. The polls also indicated that in parliamentary elections, Fatah would receive 38% of the vote um, and Hamas 40, 34%, which is uh, probably within the margin error, a pretty tight race. Um, do those polls strike you as, as credible? And if so, that would certainly, that, that would be something to, to give pause to Mahmoud Abbas. He would hate to be beaten by Ismail Haniya. Surely that would be a problem for pretty much everybody. Yeah, uh, look, the, the polls have consistently pointed to this for, for a number of years. Of course, 
the, the polls uh, carried out by, by Khalil Shikaki, this is the famous pollster in the West Bank, uh, it was his polls that indicated a Fatah victory back in 2006. And obviously we know how, how that went. Uh, so the polls are, um, I think, notoriously um, flawed. Uh, you know, just imagine you're a Palestinian, you get a phone call and somebody says, do you support Hamas? <laughs> what are you going to say? You might deny it. You might be wondering whether the Israelis are on the line or Fatah's on the line or the Americans are on the line, and maybe you would deny it. So I think the polls have not exactly been transparent over the years, but I think we've seen enough of them to, to derive a couple of trends. Number one, uh, Mahmoud Abbas is roundly hated uh, by the Palestinian population. People believe that he is deeply corrupt and that he has run the, uh, the Palestinian Authority into the ground and that he's failed in peace. He's failed in war. He's failed in reform. There's very little you can say that he's done positive on behalf of the Palestinian people. On top of that, you continue to see Hamas going at least head to head with Fatah. Uh, it, it looks like they have the ability to win again. Uh, but certainly uh, with this new representational system, you are likely to see Hamas win, let's say, a third of the seats or a quarter of the seats, which would trigger a cut in funding. Uh, from the United States, and that's a huge problem. And then there's just the broader question of leadership, that uh, Mahmoud Abbas is now in his 80s. He is not a compelling leader anymore. Hania, the head of, uh, Ismail Hania, the head of Hamas, uh, is, is showing good numbers relative to Abbas. Marwan Barghouti, as you mentioned, is showing good numbers. There are a couple of other challengers that are probably not as strong as Abbas, but in terms of the kind of mainstream leadership, he is starting to falter And that should be a clear warning sign to everyone that elections are needed, but reform is needed first. If I could could also just make a point there, um, specifically with respect to uh, the Hania uh, versus Abbas um, uh, presidential poll. um, And just to remind listeners, uh, Ismail Hania was designated as as a global terrorist in January 2018. And Everything else that comes with you know, the, you know, the U.S. approach to Palestinians pre and post election, that in particular would likely be a game changer. You know, uh, we keep hearing how terrible life is in Gaza in, in, in particular. I think we know that in the West Bank, it's look, you and I have been to, to Ramallah and other parts of the West Bank. Um, it's not uh, Switzerland, but uh, it's not Syria either. But you would think that people in Gaza might have, might want some change, might want uh, might might be thinking about what peace could mean, might want to think about what it would mean to have aid and build things that didn't get bombed the next time Hamas decided uh, to incite a war with the Israelis. I guess I'm I, I, I'm sort of surprised that hasn't happened, but maybe it's a matter of indoctrination. Maybe it's a matter of I don't know the the hate the hatred the, that there is among Gazans uh, for Israelis, and they 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 they, uh, they want a whole loaf, not a half loaf. Uh, you have any theory on that? Look, I think that um, people in uh, the Gaza Strip are not happy. Um, I think that part of it uh, has to do with the uh, Israeli presence in the blockade. A lot of it has to do with Hamas rule itself. Um, you know what we could call the Taliban Talibanization of Gaza over the years. Um, you know, the, the lack of freedom, the, the, the sort of heavy handed security presence, uh, the education, all of these things have been lacking. Um, but I think the, the big issue here is that you have 
uh, a very large portion of the population that are that consider themselves to be Palestinian refugees. They put the Palestinian cause uh, before themselves in many in many cases, and so they continue to insist that Hamas is a better choice than Israel itself. And I think that explains, at least in large part, why we haven't seen an uprising yet. But I do think that if things continue to go the way they do, and the people uh, begin to see the region begin to change, right, that the Palestinian national uh, agenda has been, let's say, relegated to a secondary or tertiary priority by some of the Arab countries themselves, that may begin to dawn on Gazans that it's time for some change. You know, um, while you're thinking about it, Matt, what the the Palestinian Authority does not have an office, uh, I believe, in Washington, um, an office which serves as a sort of, you know, quasi-embassy. But the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, has had, and then that was closed down by Trump. Now Biden plans to reopen it. I would imagine that would be difficult for for President Biden to do if that Palestine Liberation Organization, as a result of these elections, uh, were to include Hamas representatives, since Hamas is, as we've stated, a U.S.-designated terrorist organization. Do I have, do I have that right? Is, is that the difficulty? Would that difficulty present itself, or could uh, Biden get around it through uh, some workaround? It's not just that variable. I mean, the, if if the Biden administration wants to reopen the PLO or a, any have a, any type of PA representation in the United States, uh, it's actually going to have to get around a um, uh, legislation that was uh, entered into law, I believe, in 2019 and then further amended in 2020 that allows uh, U.S. victims of Palestinian terrorism to sue. Anyone who is operating, you know, who, who are operating these offices or providing representation on the part of the PA. And that's actually a big variable that hasn't existed for quite some time. And if the administration wants to move forward with providing them representation in the U.S., um, it's going it, to, you know, that will serve as, at the very least, a, a, a significant speed bump for them. Talking about aid to the Palestinians, uh, the, the Biden administration also wants to resume aid, which was cut off by Trump, to UNRWA, the UN Relief and Works Agency, which is a, a sort of refugee welfare organization at the UN specifically and exclusively for Palestinians. It operates in the, I, I think, both in the West Bank and in, and in Gaza. Um, the problem has has been that it it, it incites uh, hatred for Israel, anti-Semitism. Uh, and works hand in glove with Hamas, and in fact employs a lot of uh, a lot of Hamas um, um, members. And would I think one might argue it, it can't not do that in Gaza. Um, there is some congressional um, antipathy or, or opposition, I guess I should say, uh, for restoring aid to and financial to UNRWA unless and until it makes uh, makes some reforms. Senator Rich, I know, is uh, is one of those who, who's leading that effort. Um, how do you see that playing out? Matt, you can start. 
I mean, I, I see, I think of all aspects of Palestinian aid programs, I think UNRWA is going to be uh, perhaps the most contentious um, between elements of the Congress and the administration, um, not just because of the variables that you've mentioned, but because those are longstanding concerns. I mean, those concerns go back you know, to the early 2000s, where uh, you had multiple members of Congress citing um, you know, Hamas, um, you know, the, the failure of UNRWA to effectively engage in anti-terrorism uh, vetting. Um, in order to receive assistance according to U.S. law. So I, I, I do see that as potentially one of the um, flashpoints when it comes to um, you know, the debate between the Hill and the administration and within the Hill over uh, aid to the Palestinians. Jen, you, you mentioned that uh, Mahmoud Abbas uh, says, to his credit, he's been basically in favor of stability. He hasn't uh, incited terrorism. Um, he's worked in security matters with the Israelis to his benefit as well, since the Israelis also make efforts to protect him from assassination plots by either Hamas or Islamic Jihad or other organizations. But there is the issue, and it's a, and it's a controversial one, that he that the money we give, we as American taxpayers, to Mahmoud Abbas, that goes under Mahmoud Abbas's control, does end up supporting convicted terrorists, convicted and imprisoned in Israel and their families. Um, and a lot, I think there are a lot of Americans who think, I don't want, I don't, I don't mind my money going to alleviate poverty in either the West Bank or Gaza. I don't like my money going to support terrorists and their families. We shouldn't be rewarding them and my money shouldn't go to that. And then <laughs> start with that generally. And then I'll ask Matt more specifically about the Taylor Force Act to explain what, the, what that means. Yeah, so um, th there has been an effort underway now for a number of years to cut off funding to the PA because of exactly for the reasons that you described, that they have uh, engaged in this practice of what is uh, kind of generally called pay for slay, pay paying the families of, uh, of terrorists who are languishing in Israeli jails or, or even who've been killed. Um, and the um, what's been really interesting is that so you had almost a full cutoff from the Trump administration. Um, and uh, now we're, we're we're looking at an administration that wants to resume some some of the payments that would benefit Palestinians. They so far have been extremely careful uh, in their reading of the law, where they are providing assistance to aid organizations who would then in turn provide help to the Palestinians. So not direct assistance; it's indirect assistance, uh, assistance to UNRWA, uh, as as you noted. Um, and, and other means to make sure that the Palestinians can benefit uh, from U.S. aid without having the money go directly to the Palestinian Authority's coffers. This all stems from the 2016 uh, murder of Taylor Force, who was a, a young uh, American who was stabbed, I think, walking in the streets of, of Yaffa, if I'm, if, I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, legislators followed up on this. Uh, because of this. He's actually a West Point graduate as, as well. Here's a West Point graduate, right? Yeah. That's uh, right. A tourist. Uh, and so, you know, Congress took action, I think rightfully so. And I think there is every justification to continue to hold funds from the PA. But what's interesting now is, again, you'll see the Biden administration looking to work around it. And in ways that I think, look, in some cases, it's not bad. You see $15 million earmarked for COVID-19 vaccines and other assistance to the Palestinian areas. That's humanitarian, right? Full stop. 
But then there are other things that are happening, working through USAID and promoting peace programs and things like that, which has to you know, make you stop for a minute and scratch your head wondering, is this the best use of American taxpayer funds? And are they being just a little too clever here in the way that they're earmarking some of these funds to circumvent existing laws? Yeah, Matt, you want to weigh in on the Taylor Force Act and, and the controversy over that right now in Congress? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also to John's bigger point, right? Um, it almost seems as if the administration effectively just turned back on all of the programming that it had suspended um, towards the tail, or that that was in that was in place towards the tail end of the uh, Obama administration. You really have to sit and ask yourself. As John mentioned, is this the most effective use of taxpayer funds? You know, can U.S. programming in the West Bank be more effective and be done in ways that, you know, the PA may not like, but but act leads to actual um, tangible results? I mean, how much more money are you going to throw into infrastructure vice other areas where there were some measurable successes in terms of, um, you know, in terms of aid? be it in the financial sector or be it uh, with electricity disbursements, et cetera. Um, but it's also runs up against the shoals, right, of the Taylor Force Act. Um, the Taylor Force Act, for, for, those, for those at home, um, was enacted in March 2018 and effectively prohibits um, U.S. assistance um, or U.S. economic support funds that directly benefits the PA until the administration can certify, amongst other things, that payments for acts of terrorism have been terminated. Now, I think what John mentioned is that this really gets into the issue of how the administration and how Congress looks at the term directly benefits. Now, there is a definition of directly benefiting that was developed under the Trump administration, and I believe, um, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but also continued in force by the Biden administration, um, where directly benefiting basically means that it is you know that that the beneficiary of the or the end user of the assistance is the PA. Um, you know, if it involves payments to Palestinian Authority creditors, uh, to the extent that the ownership of a beneficiary or control um, that the PA exerts over that entity would result in a direct benefit to the PA. Um, or in some instances, whether providing the set, providing assistance or the assistance provided uh, would directly replace services that the PA would other, otherwise provide. But there is quite a bit of wiggle room in there for the administration to claim that certain things fall out of those parameters where some in Congress would view that as debatable. John, the, the the big change in the, in, in this region uh, during the Trump administration, obviously, uh, are the Abraham Accords. Suddenly, Israel is at peace with uh, Bahrain, with uh, the United Arab uh, Emirates. Other countries have followed suit, uh, and it's a warmer peace, certainly, with Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates than it, than it ever has been, really, with Jordan or or Egypt. How does that change this this whole this whole equation? Uh, within within Gaza and within the West Bank. Well, you know, I think as I mentioned before, you have I think the unraveling of the Palestinian narrative in the Arab states. It used to be that they prioritized Palestinian issues first 
uh, in every meeting with the United States or the UN, et cetera, I think you're beginning to see that it is uh, no longer in the national interest of a lot of these Arab countries to prioritize these Palestinian issues. They see cooperation with Israel, for example, on Iran or other Gulf issues or even Turkey and Qatar, uh, you know, that that's really what they're thinking about first and foremost. And they realize the Palestinians um, are, are really just not the priority that they once were. I think also the split that we have talked about between Hamas and Fatah has really just, I think, led to a frustration on their part that if they don't know who they, who they should talk to as the Palestinian leaders, how can they promote that narrative in the first place? So I think that um, in the aftermath of the Abraham Accords signing, so that was in August, in September is when you saw this announcement come out that the Palestinians were ready to hold their elections. I think it was very much prompted by the panic that both sides felt when they saw the Arab states come together in this uh, in this way with Israel. They said, all right, we have to get our act together. Let's hold elections. We need to do it. Let's just respect the outcome of this. Of course, they didn't think about what it would mean if Hamas won and what it would do to U.S. assistance or cooperation with Israel. So it's far more complicated than that. But certainly the Arab states coming together with Israel prompted this. And then one other thing I'll just note is I also think that the Palestinians, particularly after uh, the uh, election results here in November, when they saw that Donald Trump was uh, had lost, I think they saw an opportunity to try to get back into the good graces in the United States after four years of really feeling some cold, frigid uh, uh, gusts of wind coming from Washington. Abbas was on the outside looking in. He saw this as an opportunity to set things right again. But again, I don't think he thought through all of the issues, in particular Hamas participation. You know, you talk about, we talk about the winds that are blowing the zeitgeist. There, there's a countervailing zeitgeist that, that strikes me. Tell me if you think I'm, I'm wrong here. And that is the fall. And you mentioned the Talibanization of, uh, of Gaza, for example. So now if you're a member of Hamas, what do you see going on in the world? Well, you see the U.S. about to retreat, it appears, from Afghanistan, which means the Taliban has defeated the United States. So the United States can be defeated. The United States can be defeated. Maybe Israel can be defeated too. The odds seem a little bit better, maybe. And you see the uh, U.S. This Biden administration very likely about to cave in in all sorts of very significant ways to the Islamic Republic of of Iran to lift sanctions and to go back to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which, as we've stated at FDD a lot, actually uh, doesn't prevent. Uh, the Iran's rules from acquiring nuclear weapons. It provides a, a patient pathway to that. Uh, if that happens, then it's very likely that the Islamic Republic of Iran achieves its ambition of becoming the hegemon of the Middle East, since uh, Islam- Iran's rulers do not want to see a two-state solution, do not want to see peace with Israel. They want to see Israel destroyed. Don't these factors tend to make those who are uh, more more radical, more extreme, more confrontational in the Middle East, whether it's Hamas or Qatar or others, say, uh, we, we shouldn't be compromising at this point. We should be waiting, holding out, and um, to quote Maxine Waters, getting more confrontational. Well, um, uh, in a different context, of course. Yes, of course. Um, Look, I, what I would say is that if you are an Islamist on the Sunni side of the street, the Shia side of the street, um, then you are probably heartened by what you're seeing right now across the board. 
Um, overall, uh, the intention of the United States, the stated intention is to pivot out of the Middle East and to head into uh, great power competition with China. That means that we just uh, don't have the attention span or the desire to uh, remain in this region that has uh, mired the U.S. in conflict over the years. So I think there is an opportunity for Hamas to gain strength. The only thing that I would just say as a caveat to all of that is while its supporters can really grow, Hamas is still hemmed in in the Gaza Strip. The Israelis have uh, have developed a series of incredible technologies to shoot down their rockets, to stop their tunnels. Um, they've really been able to stymie Hamas at every turn. That doesn't mean that they won't be able to come up with a new tactic or a new strategy to undermine Israel or to attack it, or for that matter, to undermine Fatah um, and, and to eventually take control of the PA. But really, right now, they've, they're in a weakened state. They've been in a weakened state for a while. So the question is, how much stronger do they get in this new environment? And I think um, they have reason for optimism, but I think it needs to be tempered op- optimism right now, given, given how hemmed in they are. John, I want to be clear on this. You, you, you think it's likely that the elections will be postponed, but you're not talking necessarily about a cancellation um, because cancellation means authoritarianism until Mahmoud Abbas dies and somebody takes over and the process for that is a little bit mysterious. I guess, what would you like to see and what, and what would you like to see the administration, if we were to take a forceful approach, say, here's what we think is necessary to happen. We'll support this. We won't support everything. Yeah, it's, it's the right question to ask, honestly. What we don't want to see is, is, a, is a cancellation, because what we do want to see eventually is to have the, uh, the Palestinians vote. Now, of course, voting doesn't mean democracy, but it does mean that the Palestinians get an opportunity to uh, elect uh, their representative officials, and that would be a very positive thing. The problem right now is that we lack guardrails uh, that would preclude the participation of Hamas and, and therefore potentially spark a crisis. We also lack some of those democratic institutions that are really necessary for Palestinians to make informed choices uh, and to engage in an honest uh, election. And so I think those are the sorts of things that we need to work on. I could imagine that if we started down that road for a few months, the, the the circumstances might change and allow for these elections to be rescheduled and that ultimately we could see the peaceful transfer of power in the Palestinian territories. That would be ideal. But until then, until we have some of those institutions in place and until we have those guardrails with Hamas, it just does not feel like a good idea to hold these elections, not if what you're trying to do is to preserve some stability in that part of the world. And let me just follow up with this question. Who do you see in this administration as being at the helm, uh, a kind of the most persuasive voice with the, with the White House, with either in the State Department, National Security Council on these issues? And what is that, what is that voice saying? Look, I mean, Hadi Amr is, is, the, is the Deputy Assistant Secretary at the State Department that is, I think, spearheading these efforts. He's supposed to be the point man, but he's really the point man on Palestinian-Israeli issues. We don't really see an envoy for Palestinian, um, you know, politics. And I and I'm not sure who could do that. But that's really what's needed is someone that really tries to get in there and fix the problems internally within the PA. For better or worse, in previous administrations, there was a de facto ambassador to the Palestinians working out of the consulate general in Jerusalem. Uh 
I, I don't know if there's a person in that position now under the Biden administration. I think I would have heard of there were, but that if you pick the right person for that, that person could be pushing the Palestinians in the ways that you suggest. No. Yeah, I mean, and that could be the right position, but I don't think that that's what that position, at least for the last 14 years, that's not what that position has been geared around. It's been geared around the Palestinian narrative of, you know, uh, you know how they're being treated by the Israelis or how the Palestinians are suffering at the hands of the Israelis purportedly, those sorts of things. What we have not seen are efforts on the part of the U.S. to solve the internecine Palestinian conflict to address the major problems that now exist within their political system. So it would be, I think it would make a huge amount of sense to have a representative envoy to the Palestinians that really tries to solve these systemic problems. Again, that's not been where we've been, but it would certainly make sense if that's where we where we if that's where we where we to go next. And last point on this: the internecine Palestinian conflict is uh, an issue set that you have studied and written about and worked on. Uh, and I, I give you compliments because almost nobody else in academia, the think tank community, and certainly the media have paid any attention to that whatsoever. So thank you. Kudos for you. It's a shame because, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict takes up so much oxygen, and yet so few people have decided to look at the, the sort of one half of that, which represents a huge part of the problem. What what Are, are there any other, other factors I haven't mentioned, uh, haven't asked about that I should have that's on, that's on your mind in terms of the possibility of elections, in terms of what we're likely to see over the next uh, few months, either from from Mahmoud Abbas, from Hamas, from the Biden administration, from the Israelis? Yeah, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll start and I'll just say this, that um, first of all, the messaging out of the, the Biden administration on the election itself was odd. Um, no other way to put it. They were saying that they didn't have the means to stop the Palestinians from holding elections, uh, that the best that they could do would be to warn the Palestinians what the ramifications would be if Hamas won. I'm sorry, but that's not leadership. That is abdication of leadership and effectively giving a green light to a crisis that could very easily be halted. And you could just imagine what would happen if Hamas won. We'd see a repeat of what happened in 2006 and 2007 and the kinds of messes that I think we've tried to avoid over the years. It's just remarkable that that was the position uh, of the U.S. government. Now, it, it appears that the Biden administration has um, backtracked on that and that they've sent these quiet messages to Ramallah saying, we won't stop you if you decide to postpone the election. But really what needs to be done here, and this has been my message with you, Cliff, for the better part of you know, 10, 12 years as you and I have discussed this, um, there needs to be an effort at reform inside the Palestinian Authority, not just in terms of the pay for slay and you know, the Taylor Force related issues, but, but really the question of what are you going to do about the presence of Hamas? There is an ideological uh, schism that has pervaded the PA since 2006, if not well before that. And until that is solved, we still won't know who the rightful leaders are of the Palestinian territories, and we won't know who to work with. And this remains the foremost challenge in front of us. There's lots of other issues down the road, you know, borders, Jerusalem, refugees, etc., but we can't solve any of these issues, these issues between the Palestinians and Israelis, until we know who the rightful leaders in the territories. 
either we find one or we agree that there will be two in perpetuity. But this limbo is not healthy at all. And it continues to create massive problems for uh, anyone trying to make progress in the Middle East. I might add to that that former Palestinian Prime Minister Salam Fayyad, who you know, I know a bit, teaching at Princeton, I believe, right now, he was the one person who made it his mission to set up actual institutions and procedures that would have that would that would allow for some freedom and some representative government and something more than a dictatorship where one man is in control of everything. I don't know why he failed. He didn't get to have a lot of support with it from what we know within Palestinian society. I'm not sure he had the support he should have had from our State Department, from the National Endowment for, for Democracy, perhaps. But unless and until you have these kinds of actual inst- functioning institutions, an independent judiciary, some kind of reasonably free press, uh, elections more than once every every 15, 16, or 17 years when the cicadas come out, unless you have some of that, how, how, how can you really talk about a two-state solution? But the, again, all the Europeans also... They they, that, they they didn't seem to worry about that at all. Shouldn't there have been more, and shouldn't there be, from someone like uh, the, uh, President Biden, some emphasis on developing those kinds of institutions if you're going to want to have an independent Palestinian state at some point? I think you're 100% right, but I think we have moved away from the so-called democracy agenda. I think it's a passe idea in Washington. Unfortunately, I still think that it, it it certainly resonates with me, but, but, you know, this was something that George W. Bush pursued and arguably failed at doing in many cases. And then I, I think in in many ways we see the unraveling or the unwinding of some of those efforts, certainly with the uh, decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and and kind of giving up on the transformation of that society. I think we see a, 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 a giving up on the Palestinian front and in many other fronts, certainly Saudi Arabia as well right now, as we turn away from the Saudis, this appears to be the trend right now with this administration, probably with the last one too, right? Much more transactional, not transformational. I think that it's a problem. I really do, because I think the U.S. does have a role to play in trying to change some of these uh, uh, challenging uh, political uh, um, issues in the Middle East in particular, where there is that democracy deficit. And Matt, as we wrap up within Congress, is any of this being discussed or what you can tell, there's not a great deal of interest in it? Well, I mean, I think there was an initial there was an initial reaction from um, from a number of different quarters of the Hill. Um, I guess the question is, how sustainable is it really? Um, You know, Congress is also looking at China. They have the annual defense defense authorization bill coming up, appropriations bills, et cetera. Everything foreign to domestic. Um, could this really end up being an area where you see kind of mutual, almost mutual neglect when it comes to both the Congress and the administration? And I guess my one, you know, my my one fear is that well, you know, the Crimean War effectively began with a fistfight in Jerusalem. Right, so things have the ability and things have the propensity, and it's almost the rule uh, to spin wildly out of control due to neglect. Well. If Palestinian elections are held, the results will be interesting. If Palestinian elections are not held, uh, that too should be interesting. Uh, We know where to go to find out uh, what it all means. We'll be back to discuss 
either eventuality with you. In the meantime, thanks for keeping tabs on all this for us and for talking to us today. Um, and thanks to all of you who are listening. Till next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Odyssey. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening foreign policy.